May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Two Sundays ago, Beth Downey came to me a few minutes before the liturgy began. She said that she really hoped I was going to say something about the appointed reading from the book of Exodus. You see, she was the reader that night, and she paid very close attention to the text that she was assigned. She was troubled by part of what she'd found there. She was reading the Ten Commandments as recorded in Exodus 20 and was finding one of those commandments or or maybe the commentary on one of those commandments sticking in her throat. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is under the water of the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. She was all okay with that. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, here it comes, punishing children for the iniquity of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me. That was the line that did it. But showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, I told her, and we were standing right by the lectern in the middle of the aisle as she was pointing this out to me, I told her that I was, in fact, preaching on the commandments, but I wasn't actually going to say anything about that portion that was so, so troubling her. As we stood together looking at the text, I I did point out that at least the iniquity of the parents was said to echo for only three or four generations, while faithfulness... Faithfulness would be blessed to the thousandth. Well, she wasn't persuaded, and fair enough. Why would children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren be held responsible for what their forebears had done? Beth's question has been nagging at me these past two weeks. What is going on here, and why didn't I catch it? Why didn't it bug me the way that it so bothered her? And what to say in response? It turns out that the prophet Jeremiah has something to say in response. And it's a far more powerful and compelling word than anything I might have been able to come up with. We read just a few verses of a much longer statement by this prophet. And that longer statement includes a rather direct response to what Beth had found so troubling in the text from Exodus. In those days, Jeremiah proclaims, they shall no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In those coming days that Jeremiah is dreaming of, in other words, it will be out of bounds to even suggest that the generations will have to bear the burden of those who've gone before them. You eat sour grapes, and it's your teeth that are going to get set on edge. You make a mess of your life, and it's you who will be held accountable. Now, the prophet isn't exactly gentle either, as he says... All shall die for their own sins. But at least this business of the generations is laid to rest. Jeremiah, though, doesn't even stop there. 
For he goes on to say, this is part of what we heard tonight. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's the only instance in the whole of the Hebrew scriptures that speaks in terms of a new covenant. For Jeremiah, it really is a startlingly new thing that he understands God to be doing. Now remember, Jeremiah is speaking into a community in total disarray. All that was familiar has gone. The city of Jerusalem lays desolate. The great temple destroyed. Thousands have been taken into exile, into prison, in a sense, in Babylon. That this had come to be for the chosen people, the covenant people, meant one of two things. Either the God of Israel was not as strong, not as steadfast as the gods of Babylon, or, and this is the perspective of prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, or God had abandoned Israel on account of its failure to be a faithful covenant people. Either way, though, there wasn't a lot of room for hope, not a lot of reason. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And this is the covenant that I will make with them, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will write it on their hearts, which Walter Brueggemann suggests means that God's law or God's way, because Torah is, is richer than laws, God's way will become an embraced, internal, identity-giving mark so that obeying will be as normal and as readily accepted as breathing and eating. Not an obligation, not an imposed burden, not a form of social control, but actually constitutive of the people's very being. It's on their hearts. Jeremiah keeps pressing forward to what is perhaps one of the most extraordinary statements in the whole of the biblical tradition. I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. I will remember their sin no more. Now, when speaking of the nature of God, the systematic theologians are very fond of using words like omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, and omnipresent, present through all of time and all of space. Yet here Jeremiah makes a statement about the divine forgetfulness. I will remember it no more. Think on that for a moment. In this season of Lent, we sing these lines as part of our confession. We sing, I've sinned in thought and word and deed against the one who calls me as his own. And then we sing, I have not done what I should have done, and I've done things that were better left undone. And as Jeremiah imagines it, God's response might be something like, you're forgiven. Now, what was that you were saying? 
remembered no more. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm aware that if I feel that I've been wronged or hurt in some way, forgetting isn't generally a part of my response. Yes, I need to make the decision to forgive, and forgiveness is a decision to let go of the burden of holding a grudge or resentment that comes with unforgiveness. But even that can take a bit of stubbornness on my part to choose to forgive. From time to time when I'm talking to someone who's been really, really badly hurt or abused, I'll tell them that while forgiveness will be, must be, part of their healing journey, no one expects them to forgive and forget, as if no damage was done. In fact, often insightful remembering is the very thing that helps something bad from happening again. And yet, Jeremiah has such clarity that God will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. The teeth of the children are not set on edge due to the sour grapes the parents have eaten. The iniquity of parents does not lead to the punishment to the third and fourth generation of the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren who follow. Which is precisely the reason that we need to keep exploring the whole of the biblical tradition. You can't stop with that one verse and say, aha, there it is. God will punish to the third and fourth generation, full stop. The Bible has multiple voices which engage each other in a long and ongoing conversation, a conversation that is at times almost tense and urgent dialogue. To read only Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6, without then hearing Jeremiah, is to miss the conversation. In fact, to stop at Jeremiah is also to miss the conversation, for Jeremiah's words are picked up on by the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews, quotes them at length, and then makes this great improvisational move of presenting Jesus as the key to God's forgiveness, the cross as the linchpin in the divine forgetfulness. It is, of course, a move we must make with that writer. It's also a move that's reflected in a different way in this evening's reading from the Gospel according to John. When we hear Jesus say, now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. How is it even possible for him to draw all when he's lifted up? Unless he too suffers from that divine amnesia when it comes to our brokenness and our sin. Still, what do we do with those words from the Ten Commandments when somebody like Beth has to stand at the lectern and read them? Well, perhaps part of what we do is recalling Jeremiah, recalling the book of Hebrews, recalling all that Jesus has to say and do. Perhaps what we have to do is hear them less as prescriptive and more as descriptive, as in, sadly, this is actually the way things play out in the world. 
that our brokenness is kind of passed to each other through the generations. In his remarkable book on evil, the literary critic Terry Eagleton, Marxist literary critic Terry Eagleton no less, makes a powerful case for taking seriously the doctrine of original sin. Not, mind you, as a genetic stain which is passed on in some mechanistic or biological way. No, says Eagleton, original sin is not about being born either saintly or wicked. It is about being born in the first place. Birth is the moment when, without anyone having had the decency to consult us on the matter, we enter into a pre-existent web of needs, interests, and desires. Original sin, he continues, is not the legacy of our first parents, but of our parents, who in turn inherited it from their own. The past is what we are made of. The past is what we are made of. The past of human families, human communities, societies, nations, means we're born with all kinds of baggage. In that sense, the iniquities of the parents, as well as their wounds and their fears and their blind spots, they're all landed squarely in the lives of their children. Bruce Coburn sings in the song, The Rose Above the Sky, you carry the weight of inherited sorrow from your first day till you die. As members of human families and human societies, it is just true. For Jeremiah, God's merciful forgetting is yet in the future, in the days that he said are surely coming. For both the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews and for John, the gospel writer, the future has arrived in Jesus. Yet it's still being brought to its culminating fullness. It's already, but not yet. That's where we live, in the already. It's done, and not yet. It isn't finished. In the meantime, we live as a people who do carry the weight of inherited sorrow, But not only that, we also carry this extraordinary promise of God's promised forgetfulness of our sin. And we carry the gift of living into that in a world that is at once battered and broken and yet utterly lovely. When we sing the song of confession this evening, sing it out. Sing it with truth, sing it with transparency, tell the truth of your life, but keep in view the idea, the truth, the proclamation, that God will remember our brokenness no more. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.